can open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 14. That's going to be our primary passage this morning. We'll be in chapter 14 in the early parts of chapter 15. Many of you probably remember, or most of you should remember, the parable of the prodigal son. Does that ring a bell? Luke chapter 15 records the parable of the prodigal son, which ultimately is a story of reconciliation. If you remember the story, a wealthy man has two sons. The younger son demands his inheritance early and decides to take the money, go out on the world, and then he squanders everything that he has. After hiring himself as a servant and still not having enough to eat, he determines to humble himself, go home to his father, seeks his father's forgiveness, he declares himself unworthy as a son, and then he begs to be given a job among his father's servants. And then we know the father's gracious response. He not only welcomes him back, but he opens his arms up to him, he throws a celebration for him, much to the, to the uh, demise of his older brother who's not happy about it. But it's a great story of reconciliation. Today we have a similar story of reconciliation. And it doesn't have the same happy ending necessarily as the prodigal son does. But like the parables, it actually reflects the reconciliation we find in the gospel. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Last week we learned that David's oldest son, Amnon, had taken advantage of his half-sister, Tamar, and then in an act of retribution was murdered by Tamar's brother, Absalom, David's son. Our passage ended last week with Absalom in exile after having fled out of fear for his own life. And the last thing we read was that after some time passed, David longed for Absalom. We see that, I won't have you read it, but in the last few verses of chapter 13, we see that Absalom is off in exile. He's afraid to come home. But David longs, it says, to go out to him. But David doesn't do that. There's this tension that's in David's heart. His son has just murdered his daughter. He's got other sons yet who likely want to kill Absalom. So not only would Amnon be dead, but then the sons would retaliate against Absalom. David would have another dead son. So there's this tension that exists. David longs to see him, but can't bring himself to bring Absalom back. Back home, if you will. So... Our passage picks up today where Joab, David's military commander, comes up with a scheme, a plan, if you will, to reconcile David and Absalom. We're in chapter 14, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined inclined towards Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa, and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days. Then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Did you notice how this kind of resembles what Nathan had done to David? When Nathan approached the king about his sin, he did it through a parable, a story, a legal matter, asking David for his advice on legal issues. David was a judge. 
He would, much like any king in Israel, was supposed to provide judgment in legal matters and counsel, and so David is used to that. And so Joab takes advantage of that. And so he finds this woman and uh, comes up with her or concocts a story that she's to present before David and ask for David's ruling. The plan is ultimately to confront David over Absalom's banishment or David's refusal to bring him back or allow him back into his presence. So the woman actually presents her case to David. Look at verse 4. It says, Now when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. The king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Truly I am a widow, for my husband is dead. Your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to escape them, or no one to separate them. So one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family was, has risen against your maidservant, and they say, Hand over the one who has struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and destroy the heir also. Thus they will extinguish my coal which is left, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. So she's a widow. She has two sons. Her two sons get in a fight, and one kills the other. Sound familiar as well? Her relatives now are demanding that she give up the son so that they could kill him to avenge the other son's death. And obviously that would then leave her without her husband, without her sons, no descendants to carry on the husband's name, which was a tragedy in Israel. So that's the case that she presents before David. Well, David hears her story. And he readies himself to make a remarkable and compassionate application of the law. Take a look at verses 8-11. through 11. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, O oh my lord, the king, the iniquity is on me and my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. So the king said, Whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you anymore. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy. Otherwise, they will destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. You notice here that she refers to the avenger of blood. That's an Old Testament concept. Numbers chapter 35 provides legal counsel on exactly how to handle a situation like this. And ultimately what it does is it provides for one of the siblings, one of the family members of the slain, to go out to capture, if you will, the one who committed the murder and ultimately put them to death, execute judgment against them. That family member is called the avenger of blood. However, to protect those um, who kill someone accidentally, remember that these cities of refuge were set up. And so an individual who had been accused of a crime that claims he wasn't guilty could flee to one of these six Levitical cities. And they were equipped to then initiate legal proceedings to determine his guilt or innocence. And if he was guilty, they would hand him over to the avenger of blood. If he wasn't guilty then he could stay in the city and would be protected by the city from the avenger of blood, and the avenger of blood could not take his life. Now, David could have told her, send your son to one of those Levitical cities, if David believed the son was innocent. That would have been the normal legal process and procedures. 
He could have said, send him over here to this city. Send him over there to that city. They're equipped to handle this. If your son's innocent, he'll be protected. But David chose not to do that. Instead, he ruled on the case himself. He was interested in protecting her future and preventing her son's name from being wiped out. He was compassionate towards her. He understood her plight. He understood what the law said about somebody being without heir. Going to the law. The most remarkable thing about David's ruling, however, might be something that's rather subtle. And it may actually be what influenced his decision. Did you notice how similar the woman's story is to another Bible event? Two sons get in a fight. One kills the other. Then he's worried about his own life. He thinks others are going to come and kill him. So he pleads his case before God the Father. And what does God the Father do? Puts a mark on his head, basically saying he's off limits, that nobody would kill him because, if you remember, Cain's concern is that everywhere I go, people will be after me. They'll be out to seek my life. And the Lord says, no. Puts a mark on him. Notice how similar David's response is to that. The Lord spared Cain's life and put a mark on him so that no one would avenge Abel's death. David spared the life of the woman's son and issued a decree prohibiting the avenger of blood from taking his life. He basically said, anybody says anything, you bring him to me. And so there's probably no doubt that as David is listening to this woman's story, as a compassionate, righteous judge, he's reflecting on what the law says in almost an identical situation between two brothers. It's probably also likely that the woman's plea in verse 11 influenced David's decision. Look at what she says in verse 11. Please let the king remember the Lord your God. She's asking David to have the compassion she believed that God the Father would have on her and her son. And she recognizes David's place as a representation of God the Father. David is a man who loved and understood the law as much as he did. He would have seen the similarities again between Cain and Abel's story and, and this one here. I have to imagine that when the woman prompted him to remember the Lord, David had to be reminded, or that David was reminded of that incredible story and God's compassion on him, and that probably formed his response to her. Now here's where the story takes kind of an interesting turn. You would think it would end here. The woman would go about her business, go back home with comfort and assurance that her son was safe and her husband would have a name to be carried on and that she would have someone to care for her. But then she takes a rather bold or risky move. Look at verses 12 through 17. She actually confronts David now over his banishment of his own son Absalom. Look at verse 12. The woman said, Please let your maidservant speak a word to my lord the king. In other words, um, I've got something else I want to address here. Please let me speak. The woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is the one who is guilty. Ouch! If you understand anything about the ancient Near East, that in and of itself was worthy of death to bring an accusation against the king. So she's taking a bold move here. Joab must have been paying her a lot. Because he was the one that sent her, right? The king is the one who's guilty in that the king does not bring back his banished one. 
For we will surely die, and we are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Now the reason I have come to speak this word to my lord the king is that the people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, Let me now speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform this request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. Then your maidservant said, Please let the word of my lord the king be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and evil. And may the lord your God... Be with you. Now here's what's actually happening. David's eldest son Absalom was viewed as the rightful heir to his throne. And her complaint against David here is that by banishing him, you put Israel at risk. David, if something happens to you as king, there is nobody to be king. Absalom has been banished. And in doing that, you actually put... Israel at rest. Now we know God's plan was different. Ultimately Solomon was the one that God chose. But from her perspective, from the perspective of Israel, Absalom is the rightful heir to the throne. And she's saying, David, you're sinning by putting Israel at risk. Just as you've protected my son, why haven't you done the same for your own? Just as you're taking away my inheritance, you're taking away the whole entire inheritance of Israel by leaving us without a king. And so she relates or equates that to her own story and calls on David to do the right thing. Her comment there of may the Lord be with you implies that she wants him to think like the Lord. She wants him to represent the Lord. He's already done that with her own child. And now she's asking David to do it with his own. There's some other things that she does here too that are rather interesting. You notice what she says in verse 14. She says... God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. She reminds David that ultimately God's heart desires reconciliation. Something David, in this case, she's saying is guilty of. He hasn't sought to bring about or hasn't made a way for his son. David's heart longs for his son, we're told. Joab even recognized that. But David refused to provide a means or a way, an avenue, if you will, to bring about that reconciliation. Reconciliation refers to the mending of a broken relationship. David made no way for that to happen. As much as he desired the reconciliation, he had not made a way for it to happen. Isn't what we see here with her words reminding David that God makes a way for reconciliation to happen, isn't that the gospel in a nutshell? Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 For if, this verse 10 For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we should be saved by his life and not only this but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received the reconciliation everything about these two verses indicates that it was God who made a way to reconcile us to him by sending his son Christ to die in our place and pay the penalty for our sins. 
when reconciliation is necessary or needed between us and the Lord, he made a way to do it. And so here we have this situation with David. He longs to see Absalom. And yet he hadn't made a way to bring about reconciliation. She does all of this, if you remember here in the passage, with humility and grace. She was both afraid to approach the king, but hopeful that he would be able to discern good from evil, as we saw in verses 15 through 17. And so what she ultimately does through this confrontation is she uses this concocted story of her own two sons, which relate not just to Cain and Abel, but David's own two sons. One kills the other. And she now says, even with that, there needs to be a way to bring about reconciliation between David and his guilty son Absalom. So what does David do about this? Well, verses 18 through 33, David attempts or works towards reconciliation with Absalom. David ultimately realizes that Joab was behind the woman's plea. This is interesting. Look at verses 18 through 20. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide anything from me that I am about to ask you. And the woman said, Speak. Let the Lord, the king, speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman replied, As your soul lives, my lord, the king, no one can turn to the right or the left from anything that the Lord, the king, has spoken. In other words, yeah, you caught me. This was Joab. I can almost see David as he speaks to her, kind of cocking his head a little bit and saying, Joab put you up to this. There's no indication here he's angry about it. It's just dawned on him. This is something's going on here. This is not a real story. But Joab, my commander, has put you up to this. And she says, yes. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. In other words, he had concocted the whole thing. In order to change the appearance of things, your servant Joab, Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all that is in the earth. In other words, she's flattering David here, saying, Yeah, Joab did it, but we're ultimately hoping and believing that you are wise like the angel of God, that you'll make the right decision here. The the intention here was good. You know, as much as we struggle with Joab and who he was, and we'll see that in coming weeks here where he ultimately pays the price for his wickedness, There are times where he seems to do the right thing. And this is one here. He sees his king longing to see his son, recognizes the difficulty that he's facing with his own family matters. So he does something to try to bring about reconciliation, which again is a biblical concept. So sometimes Joab surprises us. This is one of those times. So what does David do? Well, he calls Absalom back to Jerusalem. But where this kind of differs a little bit from the prodigal son, David calls him back, but he doesn't reconcile with him immediately. And I think we might be able to understand that. You know, his son has just murdered his other son. David's been confronted on it. He's trying to do the right thing. Maybe the emotions aren't all in check. So he kind of goes halfway, if you will. Look at verses 21 through 24. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I will surely do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. 
Then Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, O my lord, the king, and that the king has performed the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. So what we find here is David only goes halfway. He basically sends to get Absalom to go to your own home, but David was not ready yet to see Absalom. Wasn't ready to allow him to be in his presence. We see in verse 24 later that it, or in verse 24 that it was a deliberate action by David. Now, again, there's tension here because verses 39 of chapter 13 and verse 1 of chapter 14 both indicate that David longed to see his son. But apparently there's some bitterness here, some anger, some hurt maybe that made it difficult for David to fully reconcile with Absalom, to be in his presence. It may have been that it was due to David realizing that discipline was necessary as well meaning there are consequences for sin. David may have been trying to force Absalom to recognize there were consequences for his sin. We haven't seen anything in Absalom up to this point that indicated he felt guilty for what he did. He felt that avenging um, the actions against his sister justified his murder of his brother. There's nothing in the text that indicates that he might have felt remorse for that. And we're going to see in a minute here, there likely wasn't any of any kind. David might have recognized that. So he may have been struggling with, I'll bring him back, I'll reconcile, but Absalom's not have been ready to reconcile completely. He hasn't expressed any remorse or anything for his own sins or his actions. So it's hard to tell, maybe, with David, and I'm settling on probably a mix of somebody sins against us. We know the Lord calls him, and what do we do? wife attempts reconciliation but towards him or vice versa but not quite there yet facing an element of no you But at the same token, when we don't want to then just turn off that switch and say everything is normal, you, they do sometimes that your actions and your sin against your parents cause this break in that relationship and you have to recognize that. And so sometimes it's, as parents, we don't always know where that line is. In other words, you want to hug them and hold them and comfort them, but at the same token, you want them to understand there's still an issue that needs to be resolved in their heart, and I don't always know where that line is sometimes. Some parents would just wipe it away and forget about it and move on. Some never express the compassion and mercy that's necessary in reconciliation with their children. There's somewhere in the middle of that that represents what God does. And we see that with David. God forgave David, but there were consequences, there was some tension still between him and the Lord that David would need to resolve and to work through. And so we see that here with David. Another great way that David serves as a type of Christ, an example of the Father in some respects. So what happens here then? Well, 
verses 25 through 32, we kind of get a picture of how Absalom responds to this. Look at verse 25. We're going to read through verse uh, 29 here. Now in all Israel, there was no one as handsome as Absalom. So highly praised, from the sole of his foot to to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. He was, let's say, gorgeous. When he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. To Absalom there was born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a woman of beautiful appearance. So he named one of his children after his sister that had been murdered. That's just sort of filling some holes for us. The bulk of his response comes now in verse 28. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king and he would not come to him. So he sent again a second time and he would not come. So here's Absalom. The picture we're given here is that he's, I think it's a way of the author painting him as this glamour boy. We find a little bit later that when he's actually killed, it's because his hair or his head gets caught in the branches of the tree because of his flowing hair. At least that's the suspicion, um, the way that it's described. It kind of describes him maybe as an arrogant and a proud, beautiful individual here, if you will, which gives us a hint at maybe what comes next, which is that he's there and he's wondering why David hasn't come to him. He's getting tired. He's been there for two years. There's no indication here that he realizes, it's my own fault. I'll plead with the king. It's, he called me back and I'm sitting here for two years and I can't even see the king I should see the king I deserve that I'm his son I should be able to go there so he actually reaches out to Joab Joab doesn't even respond now the fact that Joab had worked to bring him there to me indicates maybe Joab even recognized Absalom might not have been ready to see the king otherwise why would Joab go through all this work to bring him to, to Jerusalem But then, when David refuses to see him, why doesn't he come up with another scheme? No, no, maybe he saw something in Absalom that we're about to see as well. So this two years of silence actually frustrated Absalom. He was tired of waiting, and so when he calls Joab and he doesn't respond, he tries him a second time, he doesn't respond, he then takes drastic measures into his own hand, and now we see his real character, verses 30 through 32. Therefore, he said to his servants, See Joab's field? Right over there, it's next to mine. He's got barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants uh, servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose, came to Absalom at his house, and he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there is any iniquity in me, let him put me to death. Anybody have a problem with what we see there? You know, it kind of reminds me of what we see kind of happening here today. Just yesterday, there was a group of, um, we'll call them conservatives, that were protesting um, some of what Twitter's done recently and Facebook with blocking a bunch of stuff regarding the New York Post and um, some emails and that have come out regarding Hunter Biden and others. And what they did was they just went, simply went to protest. It sounded like there was maybe 12 or 24 of them, a small group. 
So they went to basically protest in front of Twitter's headquarters and say, this isn't right. You, don't, you shouldn't be blocking news. Just open up the gates, right? Well, they, uh, apparently a few hundred Antifa supporters showed up. Overwhelming force. And things got violent. The guy who started the protest, black man, there's a picture of him with teeth broken out because he got punched. Well, what's interesting about this, the reason I bring this up is, you said something I didn't like, so physical violence is appropriate on my part. There was a study that recently came out by the university, it's um, Christian University of Arizona. I don't remember the exact name of it, but they did this year-long study of worldviews among different age groups. And one of the things they discovered about the millennial age group is the propensity to believe that physical violence is an appropriate response to ideas that you don't like. The numbers were through the roof on the number of millennials that believe that's perfectly fine to commit acts of violence simply because I don't like your ideas. Does that sound, sound familiar? Well, here we have this man. We, don't, we have to know that that's not a new concept, by the way. Here, Absalom saying, I don't like the fact that you didn't answer my email or my phone call, so I set your field on fire. Justified in doing it, because that got your attention. And the implication here is that you, Joab, now need to go to the king and tell him I'm demanding an audience so that he can explain to me what I've done wrong. Really? I'm a sin, let him put me to death. And the implication here is that if you don't do it, it's more than just the field. Now, I didn't say that, but you can almost understand and understand that if I didn't get what I want lighting your field on fire, if you now don't do what I say and go into the king, it's a threat to Joab. We begin to see maybe Absalom wasn't quite ready to be reconciled with his father. Maybe David knew that. Maybe that's why David hadn't brought him into his presence yet. Maybe he needed to sit and to think and be brought to a point where, you know what, I want to see my dad. Maybe the issue is me. Maybe I do have sin. Apparently it hasn't quite happened yet. Look at verse 33. So Joab came to the king and he told him, so he, David, called for Absalom thus he came to the king and then we know this is an act we'll see it in a little bit prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom so David actually finally calls Absalom before him he listens to Joab Absalom's posture seems to suggest a certain amount of humility and respect. That's what it appears on the surface. But as we learn in a few verses, it's likely something he did simply out of protocol. Because he soon actually turns to conspiring against David. It's all an act. We've seen that too, haven't we? It's the way people behave. Put on a show. They know how to manipulate. So he comes in, he does all the right things, he bows before David, oh king, and lets the king kiss him. And all the while, there's something else going on in his head. But what's interesting is you see the opposite with David here because David actually kisses him, which is a sign of affection, forgiveness, acceptance, possibly even reconciliation. I think here we see a foreshadowing of the gospel as well. Absalom had 
alienated himself from his father because of his sin. The same way that we alienate ourselves from God through our sin, mankind. I mean, David initiated the reconciliation. He's the one that brought Absalom back. Now, he had to be prodded for it. Our Heavenly Father doesn't have to be prodded for that. But David did. He initiated. He made a way, just as God makes a way for reconciliation. So he made a way to bring Absalom back. God initiates reconciliation with us. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5, starting at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. New creation is another way to say it. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. In other words, the old person's gone, the new person's now here. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's that passage about? It's the fact that God initiated reconciliation, forgiving trespasses, removing sin. And we see that reflected here with David, where he's attempting to bring about reconciliation between himself and Absalom, who had murdered one of his sons. What's interesting, though, Absalom ultimately ultimately is going to reject David's willingness to receive him in the same way many in the world continue to respect God's attempts at reconciliation isn't that what we see think about my own life I was raised in the Catholic Church knew about Christ knew about the Lord I wouldn't say I knew a lot of theology but you know enough the basics if you will I head off to college my life is miserable I'm depressed times of thinking about suicide and here's this man I meet who continues to tell me he wants to talk to me about Jesus Christ I thought he was a crazy man thought he was a little weird kept telling him I don't want any of your Jesus stuff took the Lord six to eight months or so to break my heart and to finally open up my eyes to be willing to listen to the reconciliation plan that God had initiated for my life so for months, heck, for the whole 18 years of my life, I rejected God's efforts at reconciliation. There the plan was, it was simple, it was easy, but I continued to reject it. That's the way mankind works and operates. Well, so how does Absalom now respond to David's attempt at reconciliation here? We find that in chapter 15, the first six verses. Just days before David forgave Absalom and allowed him into his presence, Absalom was bemoaning the fact that David hadn't welcomed him home with open arms and he demanded this audience with the king. It's as if he deserves it. 
When David finally forgave him and welcomed him back into his presence, we would expect that Absalom would be rejoicing and thanking David for his grace and mercy. David longs to see Absalom. Absalom obviously wants to come back home, wants to be in the presence of his father. You would think Absalom would go, Thank you, David. Appreciate it, Dad. Thanks for allowing me to come back home. Instead, Absalom immediately goes out and starts to conspire against David. Look at the first six verses of chapter 15. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. He's gearing up militarily here. For what purpose? It's only one purpose. He's going to take on daddy. Absalom used to rise early and stand before the way of the gate and when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. So here's the picture. The king would typically go down to the gate. Would come to meet the king for judgment on issues. So if they had a complaint, they would come to the king, who was their judge, and ultimately would be resolve this the way the Lord would, according to the law. And they would trust the king to make that judgment. So Absalom thinks to himself, I got this plan. I'll start building my own little army first off. But then second... I'm going to undermine dad's authority. I'm going to go to that gate. And as these people are coming to see the king, I'm just going to catch them before they ever get there. I'm going to call out to them. So, just chat. So, what city are you from? Okay, I'm from so-and-so, or such-and-such down down the street. Come over here. You know, you notice there's nobody here to meet you. There's no representative from the king here right now. But I'm here. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody was here from the king's court that could talk to you? If only that would... Oh, by the way, I'm here. And they would come and they would prostrate themselves down, probably because they recognized he was the king's son, he's royalty. And he would reach down and take their hand and kiss their hand like the king. And so he basically begins to put himself in a place to disparage his father... He flattered the people. He continued to deceive them. He had no authority to do this, by the way. It was reserved for his father or the ones that his father would would put in that position. In In essence, what he was saying is, the king's way too busy to hear your case. But I will. And oh, by the way, wouldn't it be great if I were your king? Instead of... And ultimately, his scheme began to work... Because it says the hearts of the people began to turn away from David. That's the way the disinformation works, isn't it? This election season here has been one of the most disheartening election seasons I have ever been in. I don't know how many times I've voted. I've voted, what, 84 was my first election. 
is, and it's not just the politics. Politics are messy. I get that. Politicians are going to lie because that's all politicians typically know how to do. So I get that. What's been disheartening to me is the misinformation that's presented on both sides. But even, you know, there was a time when our media protectors. The media's job was to, was to call out politicians. And there's always been bias on one side or the other. But always there was so much... Back in the 1800s, there was variety in the, in the newsprint. And you could see the biases. And so you could always get the facts and the issues and you could work through stuff. I look today at what's going on and it's just massive disinformation campaigns across the board. It's just disheartening. And what does that do? that leads people in particular directions. It steals their hearts away. I get so sick and tired of hearing the misinformation repeated over and over and over again. I was watching, we watched um, the NBC um, town hall with Guthrie and Trump. And during that, she brought up the issue of denouncing white supremacy again. And right there on the camera, Trump said, I denounced it. I've always denounced it. Over and over I've denounced it. Now I know that he, when she asked him about QAnon, he played that little game he has a tendency to play. I don't know who they are, whatever it is. But reality is, right there, he says, I denounce it. You can go and you can watch the videos. I saw a video the other day, 40 different times or something, where he's denounced this, you know? Right after that was done, I flipped over to whether it was CNN or something, and right there, the commentator said, even tonight he refused to denounce white supremacy. And I'm thinking, did you just not watch what I saw? Now, I'm not trying to defend Trump. What I'm saying is, there's so much deception, and it steals people's hearts, takes them away from the truth, and so here Absalom is a master at that. He knows what he's doing, and he can take away the hearts of the people from his father. And so that's exactly what he's planning here. So his response to reconciliation is to conspire against David. Once again, that reflects reflects something else we see when it comes to the gospel. So many that the Lord accepted. So many of them feel they have the to be in the Lord's presence. Yet when he, when he offers them the way to be reconciled, one that, cost, one that cost them nothing, what do they do? The Bible tells us they conspire against him. Romans 1 says that they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They don't honor him or give him thanks, but they become futile in their, expect- or their speculations. They become fools. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They ultimately shake their fist at him by engaging in and celebrating all sorts of wickedness. They conspire against the Lord. That's the world, folks. God has made an offer. He's made a way to be reconciled. He's put the whole entire burden of reconciliation on his own shoulders. He's paid the total and complete price for reconciliation. And how does the world respond to it? Conspire against him, just like Absalom. So what we see in this of David representing the Lord... Maybe not perfectly, but we shouldn't expect that because types or examples in the, in the Old and New Testament are not always perfect. But David is a type, an example of the Lord 
a way for reconciliation has been made by Him. He offers it to His Son. And what He gets in return is being conspired against. That reconciliation gets rejected. You know, I, um, I may have mentioned this before. I have a cousin who's extremely liberal. I'm obviously extremely conservative. And we interact sometimes on Facebook. And it's usually because he doesn't like a post I do. And most of my posts, I don't know if anybody even here sees them, I don't really care one way or the other, but it's just, I usually try when I post things on Facebook to be a little playful. And so I'll try to make things a little funny or I, I play that little game where I might call out somebody I don't necessarily like, you know, Biden, for instance, I may be a little playful with statements he makes that seem to indicate that he might not be all there mentally. And so I, rather than just say, well, he's totally lost his mind, I might sort of play with it a little bit. And so I try to post in a way that maybe isn't so sharp, but maybe has a little bit of an edge to it, you know. And so apparently he doesn't like that, that I do that. And so he will oftentimes then post and call me out and sometimes we'll get in, we'll engage. Well, he, he's, he's not saved. Um, and we kind of go back and forth and I refer to it as poking the bear. Meaning, okay, if he wants to play that game, I'll continue to poke the bear. I'll engage him and I'll call him out. I'll be blunt. I'll be bold. I'll try to be nice. But sometimes just telling somebody the truth isn't, doesn't come across as nice. And so we kind of do that dance, right? Well, the other day, um, I posted something and I made a comment from Romans chapter 1 verse 28 about the debased mind and I said look what we're seeing right now is this is an example of the debased mind what we see in, happening in politics right now and some of these things that are going on well he didn't like that and so he private messaged me and called me out and basically said it applies more to you because of your blind support of Trump which is interesting because I never I don't usually post anything about supporting Trump online I don't talk I mean it's obvious that I will support him but only because I don't know what the options are outside of that but I do not post stuff I'm just this flaming blind as he calls it Kool-Aid drinker follower of Trump but he always has to do that he always has to bring that up and it's always this anti-Trump tirade that goes on well anyway as a part of this private message he asked if I support the riots and the or I'm sorry the militia groups that went and wanted to attack the government in Michigan and all that kind of stuff like what have I ever said that implies that I would believe that but that's his modus operandi but in that he basically accused me of having a debased mind and how Romans 128 applies more to me so I thought okay door open and I just replied back I said hey I'll tell you what um, I'm just going to suggest why don't you read chapters 1 and 2 of Romans and ask yourself a very simple question does this apply to me and then I said I've done that it definitely applied to me. I was an enemy of God. I wasn't honoring Him. My mind was debased. And it wasn't until I accepted the gift that He gave me in Jesus Christ. And I was very honest about it and simply said, It applied to me. So I'm just humbly asking you, Why don't you read it? Look at the context that that verse came from. And just ask a simple question. Is there anything in there that applies to you? Because it definitely applied to me before I knew Christ. And his response was to toast me 
and basically say, I'm a Christian, my Christianity is just different than yours, and then ripped into me about how offensive my Christianity is to him and how dare I cross those boundaries of judging him and all this, and that none of which was true. And my heart just sank because I thought, man, you reject what God has done. It wasn't about the politics. It was an offer to say, hey, just look at what God has offered you. Just look at it. But there's so much determination to absolutely reject. And again, he made it really really clear, and we know this about him, he made it absolutely clear that me just being a Christian is highly offensive to him. He's told me that. He says, in the, in, the, in the message, he even said, I struggle so much not to be judgmental against you because of your Christianity. There's the heart of Absalom there. God has made a way. But instead of accepting that, humbling oneself, Absalom takes advantage decides to conspire against the one who offered reconciliation. That is ultimately the heart and soul of the gospel. Let me just wrap this up. It's pretty clear sin creates alienation between us and God, but also between us and other people. That's a reality, right? Our sin alienates us from God. Our sin alienates us from other people, much like David and Absalom. But it's also clear that God desires reconciliation. That's absolutely clear. Not just between us and Him, but between us and other individuals. God is not happy when we are not reconciled with others. However, in order for reconciliation to happen, somebody has to make a way. It's got to start with one party or the other. Now, unfortunately, I don't know if it's unfortunate, but we cannot initiate the way with our Heavenly Father. So He did. So sin alienates us separates us from our Father. God desires reconciliation, and because He desires that, He made a way, just like David made a way. However, not everybody will accept that. Some are going to reject God's offer. Doesn't it happen, too, with our own reconciliation with others? Sometimes, when we know there's a relationship that's broken, and we offer, we make a way, and they're not interested. I think when that happens, we ought to think about how that reflects the gospel and what God did for us, too. But here's the last point I want to make. In spite of that rejection, God never closes the door, does he? We're going to see that reflected in David here because when there's a point, we all know the story, Absalom dies. And David's heart is crushed. David's heart is broken. And it's an amazing passage to look at because there's tension in the passage with how David responds his, you know, Joab is upset that David mourns the loss of Absalom. The men, his, his, his um, soldiers, are upset and discouraged because David mourns the loss of Absalom. But it's this amazing picture that presents the tension of God loving us enough to send or to create a way and offering us that way only to have us reject that and yet God mourns when we do that. And we don't say that in this passage today, but David ultimately will mourn what Absalom has done here. So, And it tells us that even though he made a way, even though it was thrown back in his face and rejected by Absalom, David never gives up. In fact, he mourns when Absalom ultimately faces his death. 
That's what we see in the gospel. God has made a way. Some will reject it, but God never ultimately gives up 